Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Adam Simpson, the CEO of EW Scripps. Scripps is a $1.45 billion market cap company that owns and operates local and national television stations. The company was founded in 1878 and over the years has operated within a number of different media businesses. The company spun off its cable TV business, Scripps Networks Interactive, in 2008 and then exited the newspaper business in 2015. These transactions serve to focus the company more on its local TV business. However, since becoming CEO in 2017, Adam has led an aggressive acquisition campaign that has created a large and differentiated national media segment whose stations mainly operate over the air. The Scripps management team anticipated that cable TV subscribers would continue to cut the cord and through these acquisitions has positioned the company to benefit as more people choose to watch TV via an antenna. Given all of the M&A activity and the dynamic nature of the pay TV environment, I was excited to talk to Adam about the existential threats of cord cutting and the trend towards digital advertising, the value of having a background in investigative journalism, the rationale for the pace of acquisitions that have occurred during his tenure, funding a large acquisition with the help of Berkshire Hathaway, and how Scripps develops win-win relationships with its various stakeholders. Before we begin, one disclosure to note. Cove Street owns EW Scripps shares. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with EW Scripps CEO, Adam Simpson. As always, we will start the podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. With Scripps, there are a lot to choose from. We will get into M&A a bit later, but I want to go back to the winter of 2016. You'd been with Scripps since the early 2000s and had just been named the COO of the company. The 2016 presidential election had just concluded and Donald Trump had used social media and not broadcast television as his primary marketing platform. As a result, much of Wall Street was saying that the broadcast business model was broken because digital ads were going to reduce broadcast TV share. What were you thinking internally then? And was there any sense of existential risk with inside the company? It's a great question. Well, uh, the day Trump won the presidency was also the day that I was asked to be the successor CEO. So there was a lot of change on my mind. And of course, we had seen through the entire political cycle what was going on with uh, the different way that Trump had, uh, I think, run his campaign. 
But at the end of the day, uh, I think we recognized uh, in the industry and at Scripps in particular that Trump's reliance on social media, on earned media instead of paid media was going to be a unique phenomenon to Trump. And we had all sorts of investors asking us whether or not things had permanently changed and whether the value of television as a vehicle for political persuasion had changed. And I think we were absolutely resolute that it had not. And you can see in the in the elections that have happened since that that was the case. We were right. And I think the the fears were way overblown. So in other words, that negative thesis has um, not particularly well stood the test of time. No, in fact, um, political advertising has actually gotten stronger. Uh, as we look at uh, 2022 ahead, uh, we expect that uh, Scripps to have uh, a record setting uh, amount of political advertising next year in terms of uh, an, an off presidential cycle election. We expect it to beat 2020. Um, you know, the amount of money being raised in the environment is um, enormous. We've got a 50-50 Senate. We've got all sorts of uh, uh, gerrymandering and, uh, 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 you know, election uh, dynamics uh, at play. And uh, we think the spending on television is going to be huge. So ever since we've invested in, in scripts and, and also uh, your competitor, Tegna, there's always been a different bear case or, or maybe they're overlapping, but there's always been some kind of a bear case. And so maybe taking into consideration you know, the political side, the continued rise of Facebook and other digital ad platforms, um, cord cutting, I'll add into that. And then, of course, COVID. How would you assess the state of the union as it comes to local broadcast TV right now? Uh, I think local broadcast TV has just come through a period uh, during the pandemic where it proved out its value, both to audiences and advertisers. We saw um, more audience than ever during the pandemic, which was essentially a local news story. We saw people turn to their local news stations more than ever before uh, during the civil unrest. And of course, last year's election was uh, essentially a local story as well. I also think we have to remember that while uh, there is a lot of um, trauma right now, but in the relationship that Americans have with some of the national news brands, Trust remains very, very high with local news brands. And that means that we can bring that trust also to, to the main street economy. And we, you know, I think we're responsible for the most part, better than anybody, for continuing to see the main street economy rebound, uh, driving more people uh, into furniture stores and back into retail and uh, getting home services going again after the pandemic. So, you know, I, I think um, we're in very, very good shape and the numbers we've been putting up this year, even as um, we haven't yet emerged fully from the pandemic, I think prove out that local television is an incredibly important component of the media ecosystem, both for audiences and for advertisers. So this is a company that, you know, also is in the newspaper business. You know, the broadcast business has, I think, uh, gone through some evolution over time and there's been some ups and downs and 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 high points and low points. How, you know, as you know, you've been CEO for about four years now, how have you thought about building a dynamic and resilient culture, even with some of the ups and downs, especially just given the natural up and down of a political year, non-political year? Yeah, so Scripps has a long history in the media space, uh, going back over 143 years. And I think the real hallmark for this company is its ability to evolve, to change, to recognize that the media landscape is very, very dynamic. 
And um, we don't consider ourselves a, a, a medium company, a platform from, for, uh, of one kind or another. When we were a newspaper company, we didn't really consider ourselves a newspaper company. We consider ourselves a journalism company. And today we don't consider ourselves a, a television company. We, we think about ourselves as a media company that practices on television platforms, on all of the television platforms. And I think one of the things that's made this company successful has been, has been its ability to navigate through change and to be resilient. We were one of the first companies to go to Washington and get radio licenses when radio was first being introduced as a commercial entity in a business. Uh, when television uh, stations were first being put up on the air, the EW Scripps company was in Washington again, getting licenses from the FCC. Uh, we were one of the first companies to lay cable in the ground. We were actually an MSO or an MVPD, a, a cable operator. And we sold that business uh, to Comcast and we went into the cable programming business and created HGTV and bought the controlling interest and then really grew the food network and created the Scripps networks. Um, we were uh, really the first big company to get into podcasting and grew Stitcher, our podcasting business, and then recently exited that business alongside a digital audio business. So I think what you see out of our company is a willingness to identify where the media consumer is going, to create value through that relationship, oftentimes the advertising and, and consumer relationship, and then to, uh, to monetize that opportunity in a couple different ways, operating the businesses, exiting the businesses, spinning out new companies. Just one of the things that this company has always done and will always continue to do. So you highlight the storied history of this company in your response. I think the biggest feather in the cap is the fact that EW Scripps, as you mentioned, incubated Scripps Network Interactive, spun it off, and then it was acquired by Discovery for almost $15 billion. Um, so we've always felt that that developing that asset gave the company a confidence to invest for the long run, even if it meant margins were impacted in the short run. Can you talk about that ethos that that you know that we've developed of what what turned out to be a fifteen billion dollar asset? Like, how has that ethos impacted you as a CEO? I think that history um, is just incredibly important, and it 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 really permeates everything we do at Scripps. It's a legacy of entrepreneurship, of creativity, um, and as you describe it, it's a willingness to assume some risk um, with discipline and understand that it's our responsibility, not just to execute for near-term operating results, but it's really our responsibility to also ensure that we're creating long-term value. And uh, the company, um, I think, really breeds leadership that's comfortable with that risk, that level of risk tolerance and understands how to, how to really balance on both sides of that tightrope. I think what we see today on Wall Street is, um, is, is an, an entirely too near-term focus. And um, as CEOs, our job is to think about uh, identifying ways to absolutely hit on the numbers quarter to quarter, but to ensure that we're taking the money that investors give us and we're returning it after a, a reasonable amount of time more valuable. And I think that takes time. I think it takes faith. I think it takes creativity, entrepreneurship, and it's something that's uh, always been one of the hallmarks of, uh, of the company. And are there any examples that you want to highlight of situations where you've employed that willingness to suffer short-term pain for long-term gain, you know, over your four-year tenure? Yeah, I mean, sure. Here we are talking on a podcast. Um, uh, you know, several years ago, our company, we bought a company called Midroll Media. At the time, it was the uh, first exit in the podcast industry in which a small podcast startup 
had been sold to a, a public company and we were the first company to be in podcasting. It was at a time when I would talk to investors about podcasting and they would say, I don't understand. What is this? Right. You're talking about two people sitting over a microphone and talking about computers. And I couldn't get people to understand the value of podcasting, but we saw what was happening. We saw that more and more young people were spending their time at all times with earbuds in their ears. You know, if you if you ride the subway, if you take a bus, if you take a walk, all you see are people occupied and with earbuds and they were listening to something. And we knew they weren't just listening to streaming music or to iTunes. They were listening to podcasts. And we really saw podcasts as the parallel of where talk radio was moving. And talk radio was an incredibly powerful medium, still is a very powerful medium, but we recognize the waning power of terrestrial radio and the growing power of on-demand and digital delivery. So we invested in, in Midroll, and then we acquired another company, Stitcher. We combined those companies as a, as a fully verticalized platform. We then bought another company, Triton Digital. And for a while, we were running losses through the PL as we grew those businesses to scale. And ultimately recognizing that this very unsexy marketplace that we had gotten into was getting very sexy around us and valuations were very, very high. In the midst of the pandemic last year, we decided to sell our podcasting business, Stitcher, to SiriusXM and then to subsequently exit our digital audio business, uh, Triton Digital, to, um, to iHeart to really good returns that I think proved, again, that thesis of Scripps's willingness to, to identify where the consumer is going, to invest both through capital and investment through the PL in a new business, to organically grow that business, and then to get out when we recognized that we didn't have the scale that was probably going to be in a position to compete. By the way, we, we took that, that, um, that capital and we redirected it and put it right back to work in the company's largest acquisition to date, our acquisition of Ion Media for $2.65 billion. So I see myself um, very much like you probably see yourself, Ben. I see myself as an asset manager, always thinking about how uh, a specific asset plays in the portfolio and when, you know, when the right time is to, to, to put on more, when the right time is to pair it back, you know, and at what point might be the right time for us to even monetize the asset. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. Listening to your response there, I am struck by the fact that um, you know, we did not have that perception of you when we first met you. In fact, in one of our earliest conversations with you, I think our founder teased you of being constipated, implying that you were less prone to action, especially when it comes to capital allocation. So about four years into your tenure, you've certainly proven that idea to be incorrect. 
in reality, Scripps, Scripps, as you said, has been really active when it comes to both acquisitions and divestitures. Was that part of your mandate from the board when you became CEO? Or is that kind of just you are taking the cards that you've been dealt and, you know, there's some interesting acquisitions, there's divestitures. How, how did that, you know, come about? Well, when we first met, um, I was relatively new in the job. I don't even think I had had the had the role really for more than a month or two, and uh, and so you know, I I came in at a time when uh, the regulatory environment was changing in local television. I had been running our company's digital businesses before I was the COO and successor. And so when when we first met, I would say the company was really um, uh, had just been going through a table setting. Really, uh, we had moved through the 2008 and 2009 downturn. We had exited the newspaper business and significantly increased the size of our television portfolio. And we had been investing in, the, in these national digital assets. And I would say, um, you know, investors like uh, like yourself uh, wondered whether we were going to act more aggressively to be a pure play roll up company and to just consolidate local television. And I really saw a move to purely consolidate local television as financial engineering, and I still do. And so when we first met, I promised you all that, um, you know, I, I was hardly, I think, an incrementalist uh, and that the way uh, my personality runs, not so much a mandate from the board, but more my personality, you know, I feel strongly that um, if you're not moving at full speed ahead, then you're slipping behind, especially in this marketplace and in this technology landscape. And so we we went about um, setting to work on a new strategic plan after I uh, took on uh, the role. We identified that there would be an opportunity for us to strengthen our local media portfolio by adding more scale by doubling down in, on second stations, in other words, stations where we already had one uh, big four station, adding another station in that market would improve the margins for those stations. We did a round of cost cutting in order to actually uh, help make our, our, our platform more effective and more efficient. And um, we identified other growth avenues, other growth opportunities. As I said, the addition of some more podcasting assets. We also uh, bought our first collection of over-the-air networks. So um, I'm not I'm not going to tell you that there was a mandate from the board, other than when the board made the decision to ask me to be the CEO. I think they understood full well what they were getting. Um, I'm just uh, I'm just not a um, an incremental sort of uh, sort of actor. And and frankly, the entire leadership team at Scripps is aligned right right behind that. I think we're all very very focused on being fast moving in this marketplace. I like the way you described yourself as kind of like a portfolio manager, or asset manager, and whether it was the Kate's deal or the recent Ion deal, it sure feels like you guys have a you know kind of a value investing strain, um, and that you look for things that are not being appreciated by other potential acquirers. Is that a fair assessment of of your approach? And if so, where did that eye for mispriced assets come from? I do think it's a fair um, a fair 
uh, evaluation of our strategy. Um, I guess I would think about it like this. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned podcasting, which at the time was totally ununderstood un or misunderstood, and we got in on that early. We also acquired um, uh, the, the the Kate's networks, which were the multicast networks, which were leveraging excess spectrum from the broadcast industry. And then, you know, we acquired Ion Media in the midst of the pandemic and combined that into our new Scripps Networks business. And I, I think you're exactly right. Those were definitely underappreciated assets. Um, I, I think in this landscape, you know, it comes from me, it comes from my time uh, having run our digital businesses in the midst of the fervor of the venture capital backed um, dot com growth. I, I saw I was I was running our digital businesses, oftentimes competing for audience or revenue against other companies that never had to compete on the same level. They were backed by venture capitalists. Their CEOs were essentially just thinking about revenue growth. They were probably never going to even turn a profit. Oftentimes, it was just all about that hockey stick of growth projection and then getting out and letting somebody else get stuck holding the bag. And we can't operate that like that. We couldn't, we couldn't get into businesses like that, recognizing it wouldn't do us any good to, to throw a bunch of money at something and create a hockey stick worth of growth and then not actually create value for our shareholders. Um, and, 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 you know, every time one of those businesses goes out of business, there's five or six more just standing behind them. And as a public company, you have, um, you have to have a lot of stakeholder agility. Uh, I feel beholden to our employees, to our shareholders, certainly to the Scripps family shareholder base, uh, to the, to the American consumer that we serve. So um, I think I was really conditioned by that experience of recognizing that you had to identify value where others weren't looking. And I think it's really proven out and helped the company. By the way, I think it's something that's been um, also consistent going, you know, going away back. I mean, E.W. Scripps founded this company um, when he recognized that there was an opportunity to create a working class newspaper in Cleveland. You know, the news was really for the rich for the well-off, for people that were of the upper class. And he thought to himself, why can't I create a newspaper, sell it for a penny, call it the penny press, and connect audiences, those audiences, the working class blue collar audiences of Cleveland with advertisers that wanted to reach them. And that, um, that thesis ultimately led to the largest newspaper chain in the country. So while many of his peers were really creating news products that continue to focus on really the upper crust, E.W. Scripps recognized value in serving a different audience. And so, I, again, I think that sort of legacy of entrepreneurship, that creativity really runs through the company's culture. I think the best way we've described it internally is that, you know, people are zigging and you guys are zagging. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's been impressive to watch, like, you find assets that we never even heard of. Like, for example, before you guys bought Kate's, I don't think we'd ever heard of multicasting or Diginets. And we and we are one of the, I would say we're, we're one of the few firms that actually follows this industry pretty closely. So what was the original insight that led to that Kate's deal getting to the zig when other people are zagging? And maybe talk a little bit about how Kate's has positioned you for the larger ION deal, which we'll also talk about. Yeah, sure. So you know, broadcasters, after the HD transition, broadcasters were each, we were all finally able to unlock greater value from our spectrum. We were broadcasting on one band, so to speak, and there were several others that were going unused. 
And for the most part, stations were using that for weather radars. They, 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 suffice it to say, many people had tried many things on that excess spectrum, but nobody had enough scale to turn it into a, a properly monetizable asset. And um, the premise behind the Cates networks um, was that if Jonathan Cates, the founder, could through distribution agreements, actually put together um, enough spectrum to reach 100% of the US, he would have a full-fledged over-the-air network, which he then could monetize in the national marketplace. So doing the math, all he had to do is make sure that his leasing arrangements for the spectrum and his programming arrangements were less expensive than what he was gonna be able to sell all of that inventory in the national marketplace. And after seeing significant success with Bounce, the first African-American broadcast network, Jonathan began fundraising to launch several other networks. We came in at that point. We had been running Bounce on some of our subchannels. We saw the ratings. We could see that this network was attracting a large audience uh, of engaged African-American consumers. And we recognized that there could be greater value in what he was creating if he could take that model and duplicate it. And so we made a small investment. Brian Lawler brought that to the company. Brian Lawler is our president of local broadcast and Brian was very embedded in the broadcast industry. Brian then went on to serve on the Cates board representing our company and our investment. And then when we saw there was an opportunity for us to bring this in, we went ahead and made an offer. And there was, a, there was a bit of an auction process involved, but ultimately we brought the business in. Um, again, I would say that we initially brought the business in, many investors didn't understand. In fact, you know, I, I remember sitting in the room when we were about to do the announcement. You never really know how Wall Street's gonna react to an to a announcement. And I thought to myself, well, they love broadcast and they like television and they want us to be more of a pure play. There was some frustration when we would go off and do digital deals. I think this is gonna go really well. We announced the deal, and I would say it's accurate to say that Wall Street sort of panned it initially. Nobody really understood it. We had a lot of concerns about the, uh, the cost of the content, the leasing arrangements. Nobody really understood you know, who was watching this. It, it actually reminded me of our podcasting announcement. And so, um, and, and so you know, I, I, think, I think back to those moments where we're trying to decide what do we want to do? How do we want to do it? For us, it's about understanding our strategy and the vision, not getting so tied up or worried in how Wall Street's going to be reacting and recognize that ultimately we'll educate the street and they'll come along as they realize that we'll put up the numbers that we said we would. And then, um, so maybe just, just follow on. So you, you, you bought Kate's and, uh, and then, you know, last year in the middle of the pandemic, um, decide to buy Ion. So maybe talk a little bit about how Kate's positioned you for that Ion deal. But also, I'd love to hear a little bit about deal timing in the sense that like that was an interesting time to take a big swing. So I would love to hear that that you know anecdote and that story about how you know how hard a conversation that was internally. Yeah, sure. So um, well, we'll start with the conventional logic between the two businesses. I guess I just mentioned that at Kate's we lease spectrum from other broadcasters. Uh, several years ago, I had met with the CEO of Ion Media. We had been on a panel together at a Needham Growth Conference. And afterwards we sat down and we talked and we recognized um, that um, he was looking for ways for, for him to increase the value of his asset. 
And we were always looking for ways to increase distribution. And in this case, we were talking about newsy. He felt like if he put news on ION, there was a good chance that he could get higher ratings. And we felt like if we could get newsy onto over-the-air broadcasting, we'd expose the brand to an entirely new audience. Well, that story sort of propels itself such that we, we met again um, at, uh, at the NAB, I think it was, and had another uh, glass of wine together and talked about it. And, and I remember talking about their digital subchannels. And I remember recognizing that they were fairly immature in the execution of monetization of their excess spectrum. So what most people don't understand about ION is it's a large collection of TV stations. People watch it on cable and they watch it over the air, but what they, what they think is a cable network is really a collection of TV stations that le leverages the federal regulation of must carry to get over the air, uh, to get uh, cable coverage. Um, and, and we began to think what would happen if we acquired ION and all of that broadcast spectrum and then transitioned our signals from the contracts where we were leasing space over to the spectrum that we would potentially own. And the math was incredibly attractive. We immediately saw that it would provide us with about $500 million in synergies over about five years. That's just the, the value of transporting our signals from leased spectrum onto own spectrum. So that was sort of the thesis, the premise or the industrial logic behind the deal. The, the, the timing of the deal was sort of interesting. Um, and I'm not sure I've really shared this uh, publicly all that much, but uh, there, there was an auction process uh, at, the, uh, at the very end of 2019, beginning of 2020 that we were engaged in. And I suspect we were engaged in it with maybe one or two other strategics, but I think probably more likely potentially um, some SPACs and private equity. Uh, the, the business was just um, throwing off a lot of cash. It was, a, it was the final asset in a portfolio of Black Diamonds, the uh, distressed debt uh, PE firm that had been holding it for, I think, more than 10 years. Uh, and uh, it had always been sort of talked about as being in one way or another for sale, but, but they engaged with bankers and began a process and we began the work to participate in that process. Um, but I would say one of the other things that's, that's true about our company is we never pay for more than we think something is worth. And we did recognize a lot of synergy, but we really had sort of put a cap on what we thought the, the, the asset would be worth to us in terms of a big bet. It was still a lot, but nevertheless, um, the way things uh, un, un, uh, unfolded, we started to get the feeling that there were probably financial players that were more likely to win in this process and then to lever up the business with a lot of debt and sort of do what the you know, typical private equity play is. Uh, hold it for a little while and just spin off a lot of cash and recap it over and over, which obviously wasn't going to be as um, as as beneficial to the business as what we were, we thought we would do. But nonetheless, we thought they had a pretty good chance of winning. And then the pandemic hit, and when then the pen, when the pandemic hit and the capital markets fell apart, the sponsor decided they want to pull back on the deal. They didn't want to move forward on it. And and I kept calling them and saying, look, we're, we're sort of still interested. Now, the truth was when the capital markets fell apart, they fell apart for us too. And so it was an issue, but I wanted to make sure they understood that when things firmed up, we would be there. Kept calling, kept moving things forward. I mean, there were, there were several hurdles I think that we had to get over. Ultimately, um, between bank financing and sitting down with the folks at Berkshire Hathaway, we were able to put together, I think, a compelling all-cash bid 
that we thought would be enough to motivate the sellers to transact. It was certainly well below what we thought the asset would have gone for in, in the beginning of 2020, um, but we thought we had an opportunity. And here's why. This asset um, required you to be able to buy a lot of television stations, a lot of spectrum. And at the moment this happened, in the, during the Trump administration, we were in the midst of a fairly uh, lightly, light touch regulatory environment. And we sort of suspected that if Trump were to lose the presidency and Biden were to come in, the FCC would change a bit. And it's possible that, um, that the asset would not actually be able to be transacted with a strategic. And I think the sellers also understood that. And so it was sort of a moment in time for us to um, put in an unsolicited bid to attract their interest and then race to the finish and get this thing done without anybody else knowing. And then from there, move quickly through um, regulatory clearance and get the transaction cleared and done through the DOJ and the FCC in time for a first of the year um, close. So it was, it was, you know, lots of hurdles. I've sort of condensed it down um, and a lot of work by, uh, by our team, uh, incredible work by our team and the team on the other side, but um, a really, really good result. So it sounds like it was a combination of some luck in terms of timing. And then I always love situations where you're the natural acquirer and Kate's gave you that opportunity to be the natural acquirer of those assets. Um, it, it did, it did. Yeah. And, and I mean, and all, look, it also had to do with um, the family's support, the Scripps family's support, the support of Berkshire Hathaway and, uh, and the work that they had done on the deal and the logic of the deal and, and their attraction to Scripps as a family controlled company that zigs when everybody else is zagging as you described also. So all of those things really lined up along with a little luck to allow us to do it. So I don't know how much you could say, but I would love to hear a little bit about how Berkshire, like, you know, obviously <laughs> it, it's an interesting partner there. I'd love to hear a little more about Berkshire, how they got involved, but also, you know, you guys took on a fair amount of debt, even with the, you know, the, the Berkshire investment. So I'm interested, like, you know, this, this family companies are often very conservative in how they're run because it's their money. And, and in a lot of cases, so I'm interested, like, you know, how, how you thought about putting on 5X plus leverage during a pandemic and, and, you know, taking a big swing with leverage. Well, believe me, um, you know, there was a lot of thought put into it, uh, plenty of sleepless nights. Um, but ultimately, we recognized that the cash flow profile of the company would be strengthened. And um, the, despite the leverage, we recognized the amount of cash that we would see coming in, both from our local media business and from this just behemoth and incredibly accretive transaction, was going to actually um, make things easier for us to cover fixed costs. So um, it wasn't so much a matter of worrying about that as it was, you know, making sure we could line up all of our ducks in the middle of a pandemic when the capital markets on a daily basis were changing sentiment. Uh, you know, the other, I guess the other factor uh, in, in the deal was recognizing that we had uh, an incredible political year lining up in 2020. So you know, it's absolutely true that in the early stages of the pandemic, when the lockdowns occurred, we saw local advertising, you know, really cut in half. It was pretty scary. Um, but we also saw an incredibly um, competitive political cycle shaping up, and we knew that would benefit us. 
And, you know, I never like to say that anything is contracted or it's a lock, but when I think about catalysts that allow us to lean into the disruption and take advantage of the opportunity, you have to just be able to look a little bit further around the corner. You can't be afraid of the near-term, you know, the near-term impact when you can see around the corner and you have a, a pretty decent sense as to what's there. And I think we had a pretty decent sense as to what was there. And we also began to see the, the rebound in the capital markets and the rebound in the economy. And we had the support of the Scripps family. And, and of course, we had the support of Berkshire Hathaway in the deal. Great, that's, that's really great color. So moving a little bit uh, to a different subject, I think one of the more interesting things that makes, and, and one thing that makes scripts a little complicated is that you have a number of large stakeholders. So you have the relationships with NBC, CBS, Fox, and ABC on one side. And on the other side, you have partnerships with the big distributors of your, of your content, such as Charter, Cox, and Comcast. And there's always some retention, uh, sorry, um, there's always some tension as you renew those agreements with these partners. I'm interested what your strategy has uh, been around creating win-win partnerships with both the networks on one hand and then the MVPDs on the other hand. Yeah, I mean, this is what's so great about the television ecosystem. It's this incredibly complicated and highly regulated ecosystem where all of the players are really bound together in contracts, um, in consumer agreements, in, um, in economics, and so it's true, you know, we have tough negotiations with the cable operators, the MVPDs that carry our signals and pay us for the rights to distribute those signals into their local franchises, their local systems. That's what we call retransmission revenue. Um, we also have, uh, you know, uh, longstanding relationships with the, uh, with the networks who provide us with a lot of our programming. And, uh, and, and both of those relationships we both bring value to the table. When it comes to the network affiliate model, the networks recognize that we are their distribution channel into the local markets. And that most consumers, they, they don't have a relationship with ABC, they have a relationship like they do here in Cincinnati with WCPO and with Channel 9. The relationship is with our local brand. They like watching that, that network programming, but the fact is they, they've had a 50-year relationship and the advertisers have a 50-year relationship with the local station. And so there's value being delivered by the local stations when we, when we sit down at the table and negotiate the terms of our, of our programming agreements. And likewise, the cable operators and the satellite operators recognize that um, out of all of the viewing happening on their, on their program guide, their long list of channels, 40% of the viewing is happening with the local stations, our network affiliates. And so again, when we sit down to negotiate those retrans rates, they understand that we're bringing valuable programming, valuable local news to the table, valuable local content and strong brands and sports, and they're bringing distribution. And so, you know, I'm not going to tell you those conversations aren't tough. They are tough, but ultimately they end up being resolved with fair programming agreements um, and fair retransmission agreements because all parties recognize that we do need each other in order to have a fully formed consumer product for the end user. I definitely want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the retrans revenue line uh, that you, you generate. Uh, but first, I'm interested in, in your perspective on the state of the cable bundle. So obviously the cable bundle has been under pressure and your distribution partners are more focused on selling internet than they are to selling cable TV. 
So can you talk about what you've done over the last four years to position yourself to an environment where there are fewer and fewer people subscribing to pay TV? Well, at Scripps, this is really the thesis, right? I mean, we believe that we have a lot of upside ahead with retransmission revenue. We'll continue to reprice our retransmission consent agreements with the cable operators over the next many years, each time achieving, I think, higher rates because we're still moving towards that um, that fair compensation that broadcasters deserve for that distribution of our signals in the local marketplaces. But we also see that the cable operators and the cable subs, the subscribers are under pressure. More and more people are choosing different ways to watch television. And that's exactly been why we got into the over-the-air marketplace. That's exactly why we chose to invest heavily with the acquisition of Ion Media, because um, we see over-the-air as a growing component of the future bundle. It's not going to be a future about just over the air or pay TV or OTT or connected TV, we see a future in which all three of those platforms play important roles. And my job is to make sure that we're really positioned best to profit from that disruption. What we did was we invested in the over the air marketplace, buying uh, the Cates networks and combining it then with Ion Media. And in doing so, we really turned ourselves into the largest portfolio of over the air networks. And we did it at a really pivotal time because as consumers are cutting the cord, they're oftentimes looking at subscription video on demand services like Netflix and they're, plug and they're plugging in digital antennas. And when they plug in digital antennas and they scan for channels, they recognize that there's an entire universe of free television available to them. And that universe, in that universe, we have a withering share. I mean, if you, if you go into the OTA marketplace, We've just recently, recently launched three more networks, but even before that launch, we had a 26 share of viewing in the OTA marketplace. That's a lot of share. So our opportunity is significant in the OTA marketplace, and that marketplace has grown tremendously. Back in the old days, over-the-air television was really a product mostly for people that couldn't afford pay TV right? You couldn't afford cable. And so you plugged in antenna and you watched, you know, a couple of channels over the year. Well, the marketplace has matured and it's come a long way since those days. And now between 30 and 40% of US homes really rely on over the year. They rely on the over the year signals for, for their NFL programming to watch football games. They, they rely on it for, uh, you know, their network programming, whether they want to watch the bachelor or the Emmys, you know, it all comes together in high definition and it's free. And there was an entire, there was an entire um, generation that didn't even realize television was free. I mean, we, we have some work to do, right? We have some work to do to re-educate to re people. We recently saw some, um, some survey results where younger people thought, you know, watching television over the air was piracy. It's not piracy, right? Your tax dollars provide for the regulations that help regulate the, uh, the over-the-air environment. And so it's really important that young people understand that, that the over-the-air marketplace also produces premium programming streams that oftentimes um, are programmed with the same shows that they're already watching on pay services. So we're, we're in the midst of the situation where consumers are self-bundling. They're taking the, the SVOD services like Netflix or Prime, they're adding on the niche services like Disney Plus or ESPN Plus, and then they're recognizing that they're paying as much money as they used to when they were complaining about their cable bills. And so what they do is they plug in that digital antenna and they recognize that this is entire universe 
for them of television they can watch. The other thing that we see happening, Ben, is um, fatigue with SVOD services. You know, I, I don't know about you, but um, every once in a while, my wife and I will finish binge watching a show and we find ourselves sitting on the, uh, on the couch and looking at the Netflix startup screen and we're almost paralyzed with indecision. We don't know which show to start next. And the algorithms generally do a pretty good job, but still it feels like it's a lot of work. Sometimes you just wanna turn on the television and, and flip around and find yourself watching something that's comfortable. You know, for me, that's law and order, right? I just, I, I love watching law and order. I can't get enough of it. And so, you know, almost every night of the, uh, uh, every night of the week, I can find law and order somewhere. And that's, that's that, that, that phenomenon that we call collision viewing. It's incredibly important. So we think the combination of free and easy make over the air a really compelling uh, consumer proposition that will continue seeing its growth for a long time to come. So when someone hears you um, talking about the benefits of OTA uh, viewing, you know, it almost, it, it sounds like it's almost like a hedge against what you think is gonna happen, you know, to the, uh, to your, your, the retrans revenue side. Maybe talk a little bit about the visibility that you guys have been able to get into, into your own revenue stream as retrans has been able to, is, has become a larger and larger share of your, your revenues. And then maybe a little bit about like how, how do you think about the, we want an ad model, we want a subscription model, you know, how do you blend those two into, into something that is, is palatable for investors? Yeah, I mean, we, we think there's continued growth ahead in retrans, but it's on the back of repricing. It's not going to be on the back of people organically deciding to sign up for pay television. We understand where that business is going. Nevertheless, we've seen sub declines really moderate. I think we're getting to the place now where the average consumer is recognizing that the amount of money they're paying for all of those subscription video on demand services on an a la carte basis is at this point rivaling what they used to complain about in terms of cable. And so we're getting to a sort of a place of parity. The same thing is happening as we've seen people cutting the cord and moving over to virtual MVPDs like YouTube TV or Hulu. Those, those services have also gone through their earliest stages and now are seeing price increases. So you're starting to see sort of a, a stasis of, uh, of the TV ecosystem. And we're equally happy for a consumer to watch us through YouTube TV or through Comcast. Either way, we're being properly compensated. What we've done is taken it a step further and recognize for some consumers, they're not gonna choose Comcast or YouTube TV. They're gonna choose purely an a la carte bundle that's gonna allow them to you know, pick and choose what they want, whether it's SVOD services like Amazon Prime or, or Netflix or the niche ones like Discovery Plus and Disney Plus. And what we believe strongly in is the proposition that the free over-the-air marketplace will, will be a nice supplement to that. On the advertising side, the really interesting part of this is that all of the, as all of those consumers either cut the cord or never go with pay TV, they never enter an ecosystem that allows brands and, uh, and advertisers and agencies to reach them. And so that's why agencies and brands have start to, started to recognize that the marketplace where we operate, OTA, is one of the best places for them to reach the cord cutting audience, right? So if you, don't, if you don't have a pay TV subscription and you're watching network television, you're watching it through OTA and we can reach you. And they can't be reached in 
Amazon Prime. They can't be reached through Netflix. Those are non-advertising supported me uh, mediums. So we haven't really moved into the direction of, of subscription at our company. We believe strongly that there's a lot of opportunity in the national advertising marketplace um, where we can provide the connection between the very fickle um, cord cutting audience, big incumbent audiences that brands need to reach and those brands. That's a really interesting overview of the way you're thinking about it. And, you know, you make a really compelling case. And, if, and, and one of the things that we have noticed is that, you know, as you said, with the Kate's acquisition, people were just didn't understand it. Right. And so it, there's just a maturation period for you guys, especially. But I think when I look at the multiples that all the public broadcast TV companies trade at, the market seems to be taking the view you know, for whatever reason, idiosyncratic to the company, but that the cash flows you guys are generating are not that predictable or sustainable. So when you talk to investors, you know, have we have we covered all the things that they're worried about? Or are there other things that are on their minds that, you know, that, you know, may have some merit, but you feel like you're, you know, script is well positioned to, to defend against that? Well, I mean, you started our conversation by citing a bull case, I'm sorry, a bear case back in 2016, when everybody thought political advertising was moving away from local television, and that, that just never bore out. I think as an industry, we, we for some reason tend to go from uh, sort of, you know, boogeyman to boogeyman with investors concerned about something that's just going to fundamentally change the way Americans um, have a relationship with their television. And the truth is the industry and scripts continues to evolve quickly in a way that allows us to, to, to not only, uh, I think, secure our, uh, our business, but uh, evolve and grow the business. I, I, I can certainly tell you, you know, I can't speak for our peers, but um, at scripts, that's definitely the way we think about it. I mean, we really think about you know, the long-term value we bring into the television ecosystem and the role that our brands will play and continue to play no matter where television is viewed. And I, and I even mean, you know, platform-wise. I mean, the, you know, when we talk about television today, I don't, I'm not just referring to the 60-inch piece of screen on piece of glass on the, on the wall. At this point, I'm thinking about the television as my daughter defines it, an iPad on her bed right? Coming in over Wi-Fi. I think about uh, people on the subway watching television on their iPhone. I mean, the very term television has really been redefined. And when, when I think about my charge as an asset manager, it's to ensure that our company is playing a, uh, an important role that creates value for all of our shareholders in the future of journalism and television. I just realized that there was one boogeyman that we haven't talked about, and it's the football boogeyman. Um, which is constantly cited as a, as a threat to your business. So, you know, I think broadcast television is synonymous with sports and especially football, but, you know, Amazon's acquiring more football rights and there's all this discussion of the important, you know, of, of, of sports eventually moving away from broadcast and going digital. So, you know, what is your current assessment of the importance of sports when it comes to broadcast TV and, you know, why shouldn't investors be worried about digital encroachment as, as you know, NFL rights come up for, for bid? Yeah. So to the contrary, I'm going to paint the picture of uh, a bull case on sports rights and television, uh, particularly broadcast television. We've just seen the renewal of the NFL contracts, bringing more football back to broadcast than in a long time. And those rights go out a long time. Now you're right, a lot of investors have honed in on the point that broadcast rights came with companion digital rights. But let's put ourselves in the position of the consumer. 
if you're a cable subscriber, you're going to continue watching through your typical cable lineup, local broadcasters. You're going to watch football that way if you're a football fan. If you're a cord cutter, you have two choices now. You can either sign up for four different OTT services that will each charge you something different and will each provide you a football game or two on a different day on a different platform in a confusing array of choices you're gonna to have to make on Sunday, Monday, and Thursday. Or you can plug in a digital antenna and get it all for free in HD. And so when I think about our company's strategy, driving the growth of the over-the-air marketplace. Don't be surprised if you see us go to work around football season, really driving home the message that over-the-air television is the single best way to get your NFL for free in HD and immersive sound. There's another, there's another case that I wanna um, share. Sports betting is huge. We've seen it really bring a lot of dollars to uh, television advertising. Um, and I think it's also reinvigorating the, the American experience with live sports. When you are watching live sports on some of the OTT channels, the virtual MVPDs, you might be watching it up to a minute, a minute and a half in delay. And you'd know that if you ever have a digital antenna watching an NFL game and watch it on YouTube TV or Hulu. And so much of sports betting is in-game betting that actual live with no latency is critical. And so we think sports betting and live broadcast television actually go hand in hand and actually prop each other up. And we think it's another reason why um, I'm very, very comfortable with the deals that we're seeing being done. More sports bring, coming back to broadcast. I mean, I, I, I sort of have a thesis. Where are most, um, most baseball games? Most baseball games are on regional sports networks, which are unavailable to cons most consumers at this point that don't have a pay TV subscription. And what's happened with baseball? What happened over the last couple of years with football as football fragmented and went into so many different places on cable and on OTT, but away from broadcast? Football strength even sort of waned, right? Now we're seeing football decide that it wants to maximize its, its distribution dollar and ensure it reaches most Americans. And so it's coming back to broadcast, which is the most powerful incumbent legacy platform to reach large audiences. So I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the future of live sports on broadcast television. I don't think any conversation, just to pivot a little bit, um, about broadcast TV would be complete unless we talk about regulators. So, you know, the media is heavily regulated um, and, and broadcast specifically, whether it's the Department of Justice or the FCC, you know, there's been a lot of regulation that, 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 that impacts you, but specifically as it relates to consolidation. So I understand why some of these restrictions made sense years ago. So if you were lived in Cincinnati and for example, and you, the only place people had advertised were two newspapers and four broadcast stations, I could see that you guys had, you know, the broadcast TV stations had a lot of power, but that was years ago, and now internet and Google and Facebook have totally changed the, ad, the local ad market. Right. So I'm trying to understand, like, you know, when 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 the existing regulations that exist, what do they miss about true local market competition? And you know, what what do you make of the risks that that people always put out there? Be like, oh, we can't have media consolidate because 
I don't know, like somebody might control like this little corner of the market that's being dominated by Facebook and Google anyway. Like how, how have you guys thought about that? Well, I think you point to um, the fallacy that um, the local marketplace is uh, protected. Um, it's not been protected by uh, anything. In fact, uh, Google and Facebook come into all of our local markets and have, have certainly changed the economics of the marketplace. And I think to think that um, uh, like in the old days, uh, local television stations were the only way, or radio, TV, and newspapers were the only way to get news and information out. And the only way to advertise is at this point sort of foolish because, uh, you know, the internet has really just, you know, you know broken down all walls. Um, so I, I do think it's time for the federal government to recognize that for them to have a healthy democracy, and a robust marketplace, they're going to have to modernize the regulations so that they account for um, what has happened in the local marketplace and, uh, and, and really allow for healthy consolidation. You know, here's, here's what we don't want to happen. We don't want to see um, in television what's happened in the newspaper business, where um, the newspaper business at this point really is sort of a shell of what it once was hardly able to support itself as a profitable business. And each time the days get worse, the cuts come out of the newsroom, negatively impacting the news environment and the reporting staff. And, and, and certainly, I think, ultimately leading to you know, a negative impact on our democracy. We don't want that to happen in local television either. Uh, especially now that this has already happened in newspapers. So I do think it's important for the regulators to sort of take a pragmatic or practical look at, at what's going on. At Scripps, um, we, we really view ourselves as sort of the Boy Scouts of the broadcast business. You know, frankly, it's one of the reasons why I think the regulators cleared the eye on deals so quickly, because we don't bend the rules. We don't push the rules. We don't try to find loopholes around the rules. The federal government makes the rules and we operate based on those rules. And if the federal government and the FCC sees fit to change the rules, we will take advantage of those opportunities as they happen. But you're not gonna see us do anything, I think that, uh, that we're not comfortable with doing. And that's a strategy that are, has served our company well, you know, going back 143 years and it's certainly not gonna change under me. I certainly can't let you go without talking a little bit about your background and how that's positioned you to be a CEO. Um, I, I think you, your background is different from anybody else we've had on the show. You started your career as an investigative journalist in LA, um, and now you're the CEO of a public company. What about your experience in investigative journalism has positioned you maybe uniquely to, to, to have a, a public company CEO role? You know, I, I think I've always had a high level of curiosity um, and a willingness to, as we as we talked earlier, um, try and look around corners and 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 you know not stare at the obvious, but identify the opportunities that may be less obvious. And 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 investigative journalism—that that's what it's really about. You know, somebody comes to you and says, "Look." Um, I really think something wrong is happening. And now you're charged with, a, with first trying to verify it and then trying to prove it and then putting it together into a story that's consumable. And when you think about my job today, well, first of all, I'll tell you, um, my job requires a tremendous amount of communication, right? I do 
I spend a lot of time communicating with investors, with employees, with the Scripps family, with just a multitude of different stakeholders. So I think that's, you know, that storytelling um, has really helped. But when I think about the strategy that we employ, it goes right back to what you identified um, earlier in our conversation. The company has long had a um, ethos that, that demands of its leadership a high level of curiosity and entrepreneurship. And I, I just think that's found inherently in journalists. The other thing is, look, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a, of a journalism company, of a media and entertainment company. And so, you know, it's not so much um, that I was a investigative journalist for the earlier part of my career, and now I'm the CEO of a company that makes paper boxes, right? Um, I, I, I firmly believe in the role that journalists play in our society. I believe it's important for our democracy. And, um, you know, we really believe that uh, doing good journalism is good business. And so all of that sort of all comes together with this privilege that I have to be able to run one of America's oldest uh, media and journalism companies. And we haven't really talked about you know, the people side uh, of, of the business as, as much as, as in other interviews, because there's just so many moving pieces with scripts. But I'm interested um, in given your background, you probably came across a lot of different types of people as you moved up the ranks. What have you learned about assessing if an existing or potential employee is likely to be a good fit for the company? Ben, I think we look for people who believe like we do that they're stewards, stewards of the enterprise, stewards of the communities that we serve, um, stewards of our mission. Uh, and we, we really uh, try to avoid mercenaries, people who are in it just for a period of time for a little extra money and then they want to move on to the next job. Working at Scripps is a calling. It's a mission. We all um, believe strongly that we're doing more than just um, you know, telling stories on, on television, that we're um, trying to make the country better, um, that we're trying to make sure we have an engaged citizenry um, and that we're supporting all of our journalists that are doing just that. And we look for people that, 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 uh, that, that have those characteristics and that feel that same way. We've talked a lot about, I guess we've talked a, about a, a bunch of different variables that you continually have to get right and understand. And there's a lot of moving pieces. But as you think about centering that or this organization on maybe three or four things that you absolutely have to get right over the next three to four years um, or, or three to five years, let's call it, um, you know, for the stock to be a good investment. What do you think those three to four things are? I think we've got to uh, continue to execute for outstanding near-term results, which uh, speaks for itself. I think we have to continue to keep pace with the pace of evolution in the television ecosystem, uh, identifying new ways to move our brands uh, into the multiple platforms where people consume television. Um, I think we probably need to ensure that we uh, have a diverse workforce that reflects the communities that we serve that makes Scripps an employer of choice for people from all over and all kinds of people. Uh, and uh, I think we have to continue to execute all of those things with, uh, with stakeholder agility, balancing the needs of our uh, shareholders, our employees, uh, the communities where we operate and our advertisers all together. 
Can you think of any things that you feel like you've gotten wrong over those this first four years? You know, either acts of omission or commission that really stand out, like you know, maybe something that's that you know maybe not doesn't show up on a public company conference call, but you know, sticks out in your mind. Like, we wish we would have pivoted here. We wish we would have moved here faster. Well, you know, I'll never say it's impossible again. I mean, on two fronts. Um, I'm not going to say I got anything wrong here, but I'm going to tell you that I, I, I would have. I would have never thought that we'd been spending the next, you know, 18 months operating remotely. And while we had very good business continuity plans um, for all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of disasters and, you know, man-made and natural, um, I probably would have, you know, a couple of years ago, sort of rolled my eyes if our head of risk and business continuity would have come to me and said, look, it's time for us to put together a plan for a global pandemic. You know, I just, I, I'm not sure I would have, I would have uh, spent much time thinking about it. And, uh, and so I'll, I, I won't, I won't do that um, for sure. Um, at the same time, uh, there were a lot of people that probably thought it was impossible for us to get a deal done to acquire ION Media. And, uh, the perseverance that we demonstrated, the opportunity that we took, to me, again, reiterates, nothing is impossible if you doggedly pursue it. I wanna sneak in a question about ATSC 3.0, because it's something that um, my guess is the listeners of the podcast don't know anything about, um, but even investors in this space, it got a, you know, got a fair amount of play a few years ago as like the future of broadcast. and. You know, I think all of these things take longer than 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 people expect. So maybe just briefly, if you would just talk about um, you know what it is and how how do you see it playing a future in the in 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 broadcast um, now, maybe relative to a few years ago, as as you kind of see it try start being played out in the market. So ATSC 3.0 is the technical name for next gen television. And it's a new standard that will allow us to broadcast in ultra high definition with immersive audio using an internet protocol. And it's actually live in many, many communities already across this country. And a lot of people probably have next gen TVs on their walls. They might not even know it. You have to plug in a digital antenna to, to, to experience the benefits of uh, next gen TV right now. Um, and those benefits would be, as I said, that, you know, an immersive experience, 4K. Uh, it might be a, um, a consumer experience or a user experience that looks a little bit like um, the experience you expect from uh, Amazon Prime or from Netflix. The broadcast industry is going to benefit as more and more people get those advanced televisions and um, those next generation televisions and begin using over the year because um, it will open up new opportunities for us to serve uh, data uh, informed advertising and for us to even look beyond the TV set. Our transmitters will be able to do data casting, delivering very efficient streams of data in a one-to-many mechanism that's much more efficient than, um, than for the, from the internet. And we're doing testing right now with the automotive industry, with internet of things, um, you know, in a number of different industries to, to prove out that thesis. And are there any ways that you're investing now, kind of like, you know, how you were incubating the, the podcast business that you can look around the corner and see where this is going to go, or is it still too early? 
I think it's a little early to talk about some of those things publicly. We do spend a lot of time internally talking about the value of our spectrum as the nation's largest holder of broadcast spectrum. You know, obviously we see an incredible value in the nation's transition to ATSC 3.0, and we're working very hard on identifying new ways to create value from that spectrum. Well, as a script shareholder, we're looking forward to seeing where you're zigging while others are zagging. Um, and I think, you know, this has been an incredible conversation I, and we're going to close with the question that I ask all of our guests. And I think, you know, we've talked about a lot of these things, but what would you say are the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspects of your business? Oh, I, I think the fundamentals, quite frankly, I mean, if you just look at the stock price today with what the analysts view as the, the consensus price target, there's clearly a disconnect right now between the fundamentals and the catalysts that we see at our company ahead. We've got a growing national networks business that with growth in the mid-teens um, and you know 40% margins. Uh, those are uh, stats that I think are, are hard to find in the media marketplace. We have a strong local media portfolio with scale. Ahead next year, we're going to have an incredible political year. In 2023, we'll be resetting 75% of our retrans subs. So that's that opportunity for significant increases in pricing. So um, I think we have very, very strong fundamentals today. We have catalysts ahead for greater value creation. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that the marketplace right now or the market really um, appreciates it. I think it's just incredibly inefficient, but, you know, we'll operate, we'll do what we always do. Well, Adam, thank you. We are as shareholders looking forward to that ride because um, unfortunately with broadcast, there's always some of this and, and there's always proving a lot of people wrong. Thank you so much for this time. Uh, you know, I, I can't believe how many topics we actually covered, but this was absolutely great. Thank you, Adam. Ben, it was great fun. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-street.com capital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.